This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Thanks for inviting me to give a talk. It's always a it's always a joy to to be with your sangha. You, uh, I always feel so welcome, and and I really appreciate it. Joan Didion, the fine-tuned, keen-eyed American writer who died just before Christmas referred to the discord that unsettled the nation in the 1960s as the jitters. With Didion, it was often hard to tell whether she was writing about herself or reporting on us, or whether there was a difference. There's no shortage of the jitters today. Worldwide plague, school shootings, more and more dire hits from climate change, the fracturing of truth and contempt across the fractures, and the unmasking of the American dream as a fairy tale, or maybe worse, as a nightmare. On top of it all, <clears throat> the personal distress and misfortune that each of us suffers. To make sense of the chaos, or maybe to console ourselves with the illusion that we're in control of impermanence, we tell ourselves stories, imposing a narrative line that casts me as the protagonist or cast blame on others. But if we're honest, we know the stories are something we make up, a palliative that keeps us, that helps us look away from what Didion called the unspeakable peril of the everyday. We've just passed through the golden season of autumn and winter is upon us, a season of cold days and long nights. This morning, there's even snow in my backyard. So today I wanna to take up a koan that touches on change and is therefore fit for every season. It's case 27 from the Blue, Cl Blue Cliff record. A monk asked Yunmin, when the tree withers and the leaves fall, what then? Yunmin said, the body is exposed in the golden wind. When I started considering this column for a talk, the big maple in my backyard was glowing golden yellow against a blue sky. 
I could see it from the desk at an upstairs window in my home. That lovely autumn scene made it hard to do work. I couldn't keep from watching the tree as the sun moved across the sky and the angle of light shifted. Every time I looked, it was a different tree. On still frosty mornings, I watched the golden leaves drop as the sun rose. One by one, they released, drifted through the silent air, then settled to the ground. The branches are bare now. You can see woodpeckers and nuthatches chiseling at the bark, looking for bugs and beetles. Sometimes a hawk perches on a high branch that looks down on a neighbor's plastic bird feeder with a red roof. It gives an entirely different twist to the word bird feeder. Watching sunlight move along the trunk and around the branches exposes a stark bone bare beauty that's hidden during the green seasons. And it's still hard to do my work, even when that work is preparing a Dharma talk. The monk asks, when the tree withers and the leaves fall, what then? It sounds like a question about life after death, and in a way it is. Yamada Roshi translates the question a bit differently. How is it when the tree withers and the leaves fall? Not what comes after, but what is it, this falling and fading away? In Western literature, the season of fall can symbolize a number of things, from maturity and ripeness to the decline of old age and the coming of death. The Elizabethan minor poet Thomas Nash, in a poem titled Autumn, uses the season to evoke the vulnerability and the dread of the human condition. Short days, sharp days, long nights come on apace. Ah, who shall hide us from the winter's face? His question is rhetorical, more declaration than query. No one will hide us. No one can save us from coming face to face with the darkness and the bitter cold of winter. That's Yunmin's answer to the monk. When the tree withers and the leaves fall, there's no escape. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you're utterly defenseless. Prince Siddhartha discovered this when he ventured outside the walls of his father's pleasure palace. Despite the best efforts of his helicopter parent, 
the prince was restless. He must have been unhappy in the tedium of the curated happiness there. The Buddha's search had already begun before he saw the old man, the sick man, and the dead man. Caught in the self-centered dream, the young prince naturally construed these simple facts in terms of himself, telling himself a story about the unspeakable peril of the everyday. I will grow old. I will become ill. I will die. I am completely exposed. Even with all the power and resources of a king, the Buddha's father couldn't build walls high enough to shelter him, his son from life as it is. Or as Yunmin puts it, the body is exposed in the golden wind. Yunmin, whose name in Japanese is Unman, lived at the end of the 300-year period under the Tang Dynasty when Zen flowered in China at the hands of skillful and deeply realized teachers. The era is sometimes called the Golden Age of Zen. By the time Yunmen came on the scene, the Pali and Sanskrit sutras had been translated into Chinese, often using Taoist terms and concepts, and Buddha images on shrines and altars wore a Chinese face. The Zen school had emerged as a distinct sect of Chinese Buddhism and was well on its way to becoming established as an institution and a tradition. Perhaps its most significant move was to de-emphasize philosophical Indian ways of expressing the Dharma and to rely less on the words and authority of the historical Buddha. Yunmen and Zen teachers of this period lent greater weight to the words of Chinese masters who'd gone behind the Indian face of Buddhism to expose its original face. They had become realized Buddhas themselves, awakened ones, and embodied Bodhidharma's mind-to-mind -mind transmission outside the scriptures. Yunmen revered the stories of the ancestors and the sayings of the old masters. He was one of the first Zen masters to use the words of earlier teachers to train monks, an innovation that would develop into koan practice. His habit of commenting on the words of the ancestors would later be emulated in the great koan collections. In today's koan, Yunmen's response comes not from the sutras, but from ordinary life and the everyday culture he lived and breathed. Falling leaves 
and the body exposed in the golden wind point to autumn, the season of gold, but also to ancient Chinese philosophy and the concept of Wu Xing. The term Wu Xing is hard to translate into English. Its most common rendering as the five phases or five elements, water, wood, fire, earth, and metal, or gold, doesn't quite get it what it's about. The elements aren't what we in the West imagine as fundamental building blocks, and the phases aren't discrete, identifiable moments. Wu Xing is more process than principle, more verb than noun. It's the way things are, the way things move, the intersection and interaction of all that is, a world endlessly vanishing and forever on the way to becoming something else. Yamada's translation of Yunmin's answer, complete manifestation of the golden wind, captures this sense of Wu Xing. Nothing but moving wind, the breath of life as it is. Nothing solid, nothing stays, no place to rest. No thing is a thing for longer than this instant right now. The version of the koan I've chosen, the body is exposed in the golden wind, stresses the personal experience of a seemingly real self in a world of unstoppable change. But exposure isn't the action of this on that. The body, or I, am not other than the full expression of Wu Xing, the golden wind. Motion, flow, no boundaries, no separation of anything from everything. Each thing vanishing into something else, world without end. How could you step outside of it? How could you single anything out, pin it down and turn it to your advantage? In the earliest sutras, the Buddha articulates the no way out predicament of our lives. This, O oh monks, is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, disease is suffering, death is suffering, union with what union with what one dislikes is suffering, separation from what one likes is suffering, not obtaining one's wish is suffering. I believe the Buddha left out getting what you want is suffering too. 
but diagnosis isn't a cure. Suffering remains inexplicable, most of all to those who try to figure out and explain suffering in order to evade it, or who think an explanation provides an escape. Suffering isn't a problem that has a solution or a conundrum you can puzzle out. You can't hold suffering at arm's length and examine it like an object, turning it over and over to find a way out. Many of us believe it's possible to put an end to suffering. If I suffer, it's because I wasn't smart enough to keep it away. So it's my fault. Or if it's not my fault, then it's definitely somebody else's fault. Maybe if I do a little Buddhist practice and try some meditation, I'll find a way around it. But the golden wind isn't reducible to airflow management. The idea that suffering is somehow a mistake that can be fixed with positive thinking and zazen is just that, a thought, an assumption, a preference. It's one of the stories we tell. All the while, the self enthroned at the center of my experiencing, my experience, judging and directing everything according to some notion of how it helps me, hurts me, gets me what I want or keeps me from getting it, founders in a blind, desperate grab for happiness. And I take everyone else and the whole world down with me. This is suffering. In Ezra Pound's masterwork, The Cantos, the sage Confucius laments, the blossoms of the apricot blow from east to west, and I have tried to keep them from falling. It's a touching expression of futility and wrongheadedness. We live as though we possess our lives, our loves, our things, our bodies, our very selves. We believe we have an address, a home, but all of it is falling away at every moment. When the leaves fall, there's no way to keep them from falling. Suffering isn't correctable. It's who I am at every moment of my life. The complete manifestation of the golden wind. I don't mean do nothing to relieve unnecessary suffering or to make things better for yourself or others. I mean, don't push suffering away as if it didn't belong as if it were a possession you could dispose of. 
as if shoving it aside or holding it at bay were not itself a form of suffering. When suffering comes, the only thing to do is turn toward it, plunge right into, into the middle of contradiction and confusion and pain, even when it's crushing and meaningless. Let it transform your practice. Let it transmute, transmute who you are or undo who you think you are. Let suffering open the way to a new life, which is what Zen calls the great death. The body exposed in the golden wind is impermanence and interconnection. Not the concepts, but the unspeakable peril of the everyday, the living truth of becoming and begoing that flows endlessly and carries in its current what I think of as my life. Dogen talks about this in Genjo Koan, that the self advances and confirms the 10,000 things is called delusion. That the 10,000 things advance and confirm the self is called enlightenment. The self imposing conditions on life and making me first demands on it is illusion, magical thinking. It tries to hold in place what's always disappearing what's not really there. In doing so, it inflames suffering by conjuring a self that's not there either. The self imposed upon, or perhaps better, being composed and borne along by the 10,000 things is realization, life as it is, a self that's no more solid and no less real than all the other things. Another way of reading today's koan is to take the monk's question as asking about practice after enlightenment. When the tree withers and the leaves fall, what then? In the literature of Zen, withered trees are emblems of enlightened mind. A leafless tree has lost everything transitory and symbolizes the great death. The demise of the notion that there's a fixed independent self that says what's what and dictates terms for how things go. The delusive leaves of thoughts and concepts have dropped away and the golden wind goes straight through the tree skeleton. There's no resistance. You've stopped fighting with your life and given up the struggle to make your curative fantasy come true. 
the 10,000 things, the intermeshed and interflowing gusts of air come forth and pass away just as they are. All things are one thing. Where is there a me in the complete manifestation of the golden wind? The bare backyard maple that I've been watching now exposes the absolute closer than close intimacy of the 10,000 things which was hidden by the leaves. I see now that the twigs and branches are really another root system thrust upward. The tree is rooted in the earth, but it's rooted in the sky too. It draws life from the soil and it draws life from the clouds, the wind, the rain, and the light of the golden sun. This is freedom. Everything rooted in everything else, but nothing to hold in place and no true north to steer toward in order to reach the other shore. The golden wind blows wherever it will from season to season, from thought to thought and feeling to feeling, from now to now to now. <laughs>